when it's unconscious, you don't know. And that's why we get frustrated. We go, shit, I, why did I do that? I don't want to yell at my partner anymore. I don't want to do that. But every time something happens, you just go right back into the pattern. So this inner child work allows you to heal it and basically reintegrate that child self with the adult self, take the lesson that you needed from it, make it safe for them so that they know they can let it go. When I was reading up on you, especially on your website, I feel like you had so many, so many little cool little names and different paths of your life that were so interesting. I, I saw you, the Sarah the Pivoter, right? Yeah. So my business is Pivot Point, and Sarah the Pivoter was my. I got inspiration from Rosie the Riveter. You know, the woman from World War II. It was like the iconic propaganda used to get women in the workforce. Being in aviation in the past, so she was quite iconic. And I was thinking, what can I do that's sticky and that can help people? Think about change in their life. I love that. We're going to get into uh, you know your story, but uh, to start with what you're doing right now, I'd definitely love to hear a little bit more of an introduction as what you just alluded to, because uh, your own story is so unique and your your path. And I think one of the one of the terms I also read that you wrote down in your copy was uh, was a corporate escapee. Was that am I yes. saying that right? <laughs> okay, I yeah. love that too because I I mean I'm. I'm no, not talking on corporate, you know, the corporate world, but it's nice to have the freedom to do what you want. And often people obviously don't take that jump. So I, yes. I thought that was a really cool little terminology and your words are definitely sticky, as you say. <laughs> Thank you. So what led you on that path? Um, I don't know how, how you want to start your story because it's a very, uh, it's a very powerful story. And a lot of, like I said already, you have a, a lot of really interesting paths in life that led you to where you are now. So wherever you'd want to start and um, you kind of just jump in from there if you're comfortable. Sure. No problem. Well, I guess I'll start kind of from the beginning. I was a figure skater from the age of three. I actually played hockey for a year, but uh, switched to figure skating. And uh, I did that from three until 14. I mean, it was my entire life. And my goal was gold at the Olympics. You know, I was there before school, five to 7 a.m. You know, I was waking up at 3.30, eating my Captain Crunch cereal, so American, watching Rocky and Bullwinkle, uh, and then going to the ice rink, changing in the car, getting to school, and then right back afterwards. And my summer was literally there from 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. And so, you know, this was my dream. This was my passion. It's where I got my discipline, you know, that consistency, that really driving force going for a gold medal is obviously going to require a lot of training. And then around uh, 14, I started to have really inconsistent jumps. I was starting to have a lot of self-doubt, you know, not really meshing well with my coaches and falling a lot. And then my knees just took a battering. I microfractured my tailbone, you know, and it just got worse and worse and to the point where I couldn't walk for about a week without severe pain. So the, the doctor that we saw basically said, if you have another major fall, you'll probably need double knee surgery. And it just wasn't really worth it after that point. And we were moving as a family from Chicago to Arizona. As you can imagine, ice sports were not necessarily the thing in Arizona. And so from there, I went into high school, had to pick a new career, so to speak. And what I found was I always loved aviation. My, my first two words were for star and airplane. So I channeled all that energy, everything into a new direction of, you know, aviation, flying. But I didn't really like flying per se as a pilot because I got bored after about 20 minutes. I needed a little bit more than, than what was uh, happening up in the cockpit. 
And I had friends around me that would literally eat McDonald's or ramen every meal just to save up enough for one more flight hour. So I was like, okay, I'm going to leave that side to them. I'll find something else. Um, and there was this degree at the aeronautical school in Arizona, Ember Riddle Aeronautical University called Aviation Business Administration. And I thought, you know what? I'll learn about business. I'll still get to be around aviation. And then that way, if I decide I don't like it anymore, I can do something else. So before I even came up with the brand, you know, Sarah the Pivoter, I was already thinking about how I could do that. Um, and from there, you know, I worked for um, a helicopter flight school locally. You know, I had written a strategic management plan for them when I was in my senior year. They loved it. They hired me. They created a position. So you can imagine, you know, I was 20 when I graduated. Actually, I was 19. But when I, you know, 20 years old, got this job, they created it for me. My, you know, my ego was like up here. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so cool. It's, you know, super rad. I'm awesome. And then 2008, financial crisis. <laughs> so my position wasn't necessary anymore since they created it. And I was let go. It was devastating. I thought I would never get a job again. I thought it was over, you know, like how embarrassing, you know, just straight A student to this, like, you know, it was just all these things going on in my mind. And I remember one of my mentors telling me, Sarah, this is the best thing that could have happened to you at this age because you're resilient. You're just at the start of your career. Now you know what it feels like and you will have more awareness in the future if something in the environment is changing. And boy, was he right, because we fast forward to 2020 and, you know, same thing happened again, but COVID related. And so I had this really great career in the business jet industry. I fell into it kind of by chance, you know, even going to a, an aviation school, you don't really learn about that side of the industry because it is only 1% of aviation, but it is massive. I mean, there's tons of people that have their livelihoods. I mean, you, you have to think, the fuel, the catering, the, the the handling, right? They're not in the main terminals. All these little pieces that we just, we don't see. There's so many hidden industries. And I studied Mandarin as a part of my minor. And that's what led me to Asia. So in 2010, the company sent me to Singapore. They had some aircraft there and uh, I loved it. I thought, you know what? Hey, this is fun. This is exciting. This is something new. Let me stay over here and I can be the bridge back to the American companies, Right. And so I spent uh, a bit of time in Singapore. Then I went to mainland China uh, and ended in Hong Kong. So I've been in Hong Kong for the last 10 years, although I'm currently in Irvine, California. Ended up so close to me right now. We're about like an hour and a half away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> How awesome is that? I'm, I'm kind of going to go backwards a little bit to what you said from the beginning. When you were 14, you said you had, uh, obviously you had some injuries you mentioned, but you said you started off by saying self-doubt. You know, I think it was a combination of things. So, you know, I think no matter you're male or female, that's the time where, you know, your body's changing, things are different all of a sudden, you know, it's, instead of being this like performer on this, on the ice and showing people like expressing myself, all of a sudden it became, oh, I'm being judged and I need to perform in a different way. I need to, you know, hit the technical skill. I need to do this and just put a lot of pressure on myself. And because I started to miss the jumps, then that would further fuel this self-doubt. And the coaches that I had, you know, when I was kind of at this critical point of young, you know, preteen to teenager, then one of my coaches didn't use enough discipline with me. I just goofed off a lot. <laughs> you know, I was just play around, wouldn't be dedicated. Then the next one that I had would get a little bit too disciplinary and the negative reinforcement path just doesn't work for me. 
And so no matter I landed a jump or I didn't, there was always something wrong with it. And so I started to be super and hypercritical of myself, not just in ice skating, but in all areas. Got it. Okay. I mean, when you're super critical of yourself, it's easy to find uh, every nook and cranny and it's going to mess with your mental, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm trying to like connect all the dots. You've you've done so much already and you're so young. So it's wild to me. It makes me want to get off my ass right now, put a pause on this podcast (laughs) and do something. Um, Outside of that, I kind of want to, what I would do want to discuss is, and it kind of leads to what I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to make any assumptions of what you're doing now and helping people and, you know, pivot and overcome whatever they're going through from all different sorts of, of walks of life. What were the biggest moments in your life that have led you to help others? Like, I know it was probably all blended Mm -hmm. in what you just told me, um, but like specific stories. I know, cause I know you've, you've gone through some trauma and, um, personally with your family and whatnot, so if you if you if you're cool with jumping into that a little bit, yeah, um, you know absolutely. I think it'll bring bring the whole picture together as well, and I'd be interested. Yeah, yeah. So you know what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm a leadership and mindset coach, and I've focused more on on female leaders and helping women to get out of the box. Right, a lot of women are put into boxes, and sometimes we put ourselves there. Uh, and you know this occurs for men as well, but society gives labels and terms, and so. We try to fit ourselves neatly into these labels or these boxes, you know, when we apply for a job. And very often we then create an identity around what we're doing for work. And that's exactly what I had done. And so, you know, for a long time, I lived this identity that, you know, of course, elements of me were there, but not fully. And I was following the, you know, ideal corporate dream and, you know, did all the things right. You know, I climbed that ladder, I was earning six figures. I was a director at age 29 of 12 countries. You know, it was like this straight up shot and it was adrenaline fueled and it was, you know, exciting. And it was also very lonely and it was tiring. And I realized, you know, speaking of the family trauma, my stepfather, you know, had committed suicide when I was 17. I think I was, it was 2007. And my response to that was to completely shut down and dive into work because I was able to hide from it. And that was also a big part of me going overseas because then I didn't have to face it every day, right? My family wasn't there in my face or down the street where I would then have to address and face these things. So my kind of extreme independence was a combination of my mom being a single mom until I was age 10. Um, And then, you know, this happening with my stepfather and so I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it on my own. I can't trust anybody else. Um, I don't want to be hurt. I'm just going to go out, explore the world, you know, be the alchemist, search for everything outside of where I think I need to find it. And that was kind of the, the catalyst that started my whole journey. But through that, I always had this very kind and helping nature. You know, I mean, with my younger brother and sister, I was kind of a, a built-in babysitter, if you will, you know, kind of second mom. And, you know, I would often even get people asking if they were my kids because I was just so nurturing with them, even though I was very young, you know, people at a certain, when I was like 16, 17, just made assumptions. And, you know, in in the workplace, you know, even as young as nine, I remember being a peer mediator in school, um, helping kids through their fights with the teacher. How old were you, sorry, when you did this? I was like nine. You know, we had this program in our school where... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we um, they would basically <laughs> teachers, you know, the adults would help facilitate, but they'd have like student peers to help talk to the kids, you know, in, in kid language, basically, so that they could, you know, bridge the gap between whatever the issue was. 
so, you know, I, I've always kind of had that streak in me and through the years, every company I worked for identified that and would put me in charge of a training program. So I would lead, you know, like the indoctrination training when new pilots would come in, for example, or new, new hires, uh, I would be sent off to do um, leadership training, like with Franklin Covey, for example, uh, and, and then take that back and deliver it to the team. And if there was no formal training, because very often in the aviation industry, particularly the, the private jet side, it's run very lean. So if there was nothing, I would just create it because I love personal development, continuous improvements, kind of my jam. So I would go out, learn something, and I would turn around and deliver it to the team uh, part of that was a bit selfish <laughs> because I didn't want people to call me at 2 a.m. for something that I knew they could handle, but I also wanted them to feel like they could make the decision and not have to, you know, come get a fish for me every time. I wanted to teach them how to fish on their own. And it's particularly in Asia, there's a very big high power distance. So if you're the boss and you say jump, the typical response is how high, right? There's no questioning. There's no you know, even behind closed doors, hey, I don't think that's a good idea. It's just say yes, figure it out later. But then in the terms of problem solving, if you solve it, great. If you don't, it's a huge catastrophe. And so I wanted to get away from that because as you can imagine, aviation, there's a lot of safety. There's a lot of high risk things. Things are changing. It's very dynamic. We wanted to make sure that the team felt empowered, even though it might have not been in their natural culture to call me quietly or tell someone, hey, I don't think this is a good idea, or um, we may have a problem, and then we could fix the problem from there. And so I just always kind of fueled that interest and then started working with students in 2000 and 2015. And we had this industry association, and I would go into high schools or universities, MBA uh, graduates and talk about careers in aviation, how could they pivot into our industry, even if they didn't study aviation? You know, what are the skills that are transferable? What are the things that we're looking for? Just kind of opening up the mind to new opportunities. And I did that for, you know, five or six years, was the head of that discovery program. And we called it discovery for a couple of reasons. You know, that was uh, one of the shuttle names before, and I'm a big space geek, right? And then also helping people discover their passion for aviation. So when 2020 hit and COVID became, you know, a thing, then being in Hong Kong, obviously we were very near the epicenter of everything. And so aviation was quickly hit, especially the private jets. Everyone got on their planes, flew to America or Australia, Europe, and parked. They did nothing. And so when you are selling services to those aircraft, you can't sell anything because they're not moving very quickly. Your business deteriorates. And I saw that happening and um, was thinking about, well, what can I do if this goes away? Right. This likely will have some sort of impact on, on my job at the moment. And I realized very quickly how many people around me just had blinders on and they were denying the reality that was taking place. And they were you know, having a story about what was happening. And they were also very, very stuck. Like, well, I've spent 20 years as a lawyer. What could I possibly do besides this? Or I spent 20 years in finance. You know, what else could I do? And so I realized I have this skill set to be able to take people on a journey to recognize what they already had and how they could take that with their experience and transfer it across to other areas. Um, and so um, I became a walking billboard when I lost my job and uh, that ended in April 2020. I, I knew from about 
February that something might happen. So I already started putting things together for Pivot Point. And then when I got the call, even though it was not a surprise, it still was, you know, horrible. You know, it felt terrible. I cried, you know, it was upsetting. You know, then I went angry. It was all the stages of grief and all in different orders and different layers. And uh, this time, though, I allowed myself to experience that. And I think with that process, I also started to properly grieve uh, everything that happened with my stepfather. So it took a very long time for that, that to take place. Yeah, and that's the fascinating part on so many levels, because you mentioned your story when you were age nine, how you were already kind of you know, a problem solver and, and mitigating for solutions. And then you went on and lost your father years later. And then you, the first thing you told me was that you you kind of just jet-setted and wanted to get away. And I don't know if you're, I don't know if the right word is suppressing or repressing, but yeah, you kind of, seems like you buried it. If you're telling me that, you know, it just recently started, you've recently started grieving in the last couple of years, 2020 yeah. or so, I think you said. Um, so it was just so, it's such an interesting dynamic how that happens that you're such an, I mean, obviously I think you're even, you probably are still growing and you've grown to who you are now, but you are, and we're so good at helping others that when it came to the point of when, I mean, you had several points of happening that needing to help yourself, but you kind of ran away, not in like a fearful yeah. way, just like, just want to do something else and just get it and and not deal with it. So right. what, what effect did that have on you? Cause you did also mention that was also a catalyst of yes. when your stepfather passed. So was there any emotion? Um, cause if you're saying you grieved, how many years later was it? Was it four years later? No, it was many, many. Well, actually, excuse me, hold on. He passed in 2000 and yeah, seven. And so I think it might've been 2000. And, oh, seven. Sorry. I thought you said 17. My apologies. Yeah. 2007. So it's been a significant amount of time now. Um, and that's a lot of time. Yeah. I think it was probably the, maybe a year to two years after I witnessed a car accident. And so the way that it happened was, uh, he stepped in front of a semi. And so I never really processed that part of it. You know, there was, I remember very clearly this moment where, my mother was in the kitchen and she had gotten the police report and all the, you know, leftover items and things. And she was like breaking down crying and I couldn't handle it. Like my nervous system just, I couldn't. And I remember my boyfriend was there at the time, you know, he was my like long-term boyfriend since we were um, high school. So we'd been together already six, seven years by this point. And he comforted her and I walked out of the kitchen and I just, I just didn't do anything. Like I couldn't, I was completely numb. I was just shut down. It was like, nope, cannot. And so that was kind of my handling of it for probably one to two years. Then I witnessed a car accident. I watched a, a truck in a left-hand turn get uh, T-boned. And it just kind of let the floodgates open. And I started crying and hyperventilating. And I was on my way to see a naturopath, actually, because I was having some health issues. You know, it was like adrenal fatigue, essentially, is what was happening and that's what made me realize, okay, there's something going on. My body's obviously responding as well, and I need to do something. So I did go and see a therapist for a short while. That did help. I did process some of it. I think I processed the anger part. Uh, and the reason why I was angry is because there was a lot of um, things that took place prior to the suicide that impacted me and the family. And, you know, it was quite dramatic. It felt like being in a movie, and we felt really betrayed by the actions that took place. And so to be really angry with someone when they then die is really a, a hard thing to come to terms with. And then I went through this whole process of, you know, writing a letter to him and writing out everything and then reading it back and being able to see, okay, there's the anger, there's the hurt part of me. 
there's the what could I have done kind of part. Um, and then, you know, at that time, the therapist said, okay, now we're going to shred the letter. So we picked it apart, we went through it, and then we shredded it. So it's like, okay, we're, we're getting rid of that now. Now my process, actually, what I tell people to do is to burn it because burning the paper transmutes the energy, right? You can't create or destroy energy. You can only transform it. So when you're actually burning the paper, you're transforming the energy, literally, uh, as well as, you know, representative of what you wrote down. Uh, so that's a, a little tip for anyone who needs to process something. And then from there, you know, I thought, oh, I'm good now. I've handled it. You know, like, oh, good. Wash my hands. Let's let's go have fun. Let's go do other things. Let's get on with life. But I hadn't really dealt with all of it. And it was very evident in my interactions with my mother, with other people. I became quite cold in terms of that nurturing side of me went away. You know, anything that required a really deep connection, I would resist so even though I desperately wanted connection and I wanted to be seen and heard, I would also keep everything at arm's length. And I didn't realize that until 2020. <laughs> so it took me a long time to kind of even figure these things out. But it had a major impact. I, I pushed my partner away at the time, you know, and we were, uh, you know, very much in love and had this beautiful relationship. And I started to self-sabotage that, push him away and reject and, you know, say, well, you're going to do something to me someday. So why should I trust you? You know, I'm just going to do what I want. And I became quite rude and mean towards my mom and then just would like constantly fight. And it was always this kind of like barbed approach to people. Uh, I became quite angry, even in the workplace. If people didn't do things the way that I wanted or the way that I thought they should be done, it would be, I'd be super judgmental and, you know, not tolerant. You know, I would, I would really struggle to allow kind of mistakes to happen. Um, and so then over the years, as I did more personal development, that would shift and transform in the workplace. But I still struggled in my personal life and just held everybody to really high standards, including myself. So there was a lot of shame, a lot of judgment, a lot of guilt. And it, it didn't really hit for a very long time that it all kind of stemmed from this family experience because I thought I had, you know, handled it. <laughs> and um, I was strong. And look, look at all the things I've done, right? So I channeled all of that emotion into getting validation from the workplace and from other people. That's incredible. And, and your, your ability to, I mean, it's taken years, but your ability to recognize each emotion and the way you break it down is so, is so important. Like when I lost my dad, it's been 20 years. And then now I'm 20 years later, I'm still realizing things that I thought was good, but then it, I realized it all, it really is external. And it's, it's so impressive with you because you've accomplished so much. And on the outside, it seems like everything's, you're, you're doing so much and everything looks great. But then on the inside, you've realized so much that you got to handle. And it's, it's mind blowing to me how much that one event has, obviously, you know, trauma has an effect on your life, but you never really think about the exponential effect it has on all your relationships from work to your boyfriend, to your mom, this and that. So how were you so certain that it stemmed from just that, just because that was arguably one of the most traumatic experiences of your life and you just knew it came from that? Like, what is the process of breaking down those emotions? Because in my opinion, breaking down those emotions, realizing the fear and where does the fear come from and then turns into guilt, this and that. It's so important to break it down like that, but it's so hard to recognize. What was it for you that you were able to recognize the cause of it, which led you to heal it was just, it was just that, was that obvious or it was the way you felt? No, it wasn't obvious at all for a very long time. I mean, you know, I would, I would tell people the story and they'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. 
you know, like right. whatever. And yeah, I would just kind of, kind of water off a duck's back, right, for the, of a very long time. But I think the kind of recognition and the catalyst for realizing I really needed some deep healing and needed to peel back the layers and look with a microscope at what was going on was the fact that, you know, I, I got married in 2008 and then separated from my husband in 2009 and we, uh, sorry, 18, <laughs> 2018 and then 2019. Um, and then, you know, processed the divorce very quickly. So it was this realization that I was in this situation with someone that I loved and I was desperately trying to get love back from, and they did love me, but it was not in the way that I needed it. Uh, because I also wasn't loving myself. I was rejecting a lot of parts of myself. I, would, I was rejecting being American, like when people would guess that I was Canadian or even Australian, because my ex-husband was Australian and this is my current boyfriend, like I have a thing for Australians. <laughs> um, you know, I'd be like almost honored that they didn't guess American. And, you know, I would kind of scoff whenever my mom's side of the family would be like, you know, really, uh, oh, look at the Polish person in the Olympics or this. And I'd be like, why is that so important? You know, and I would just kind of, all these pieces of me reject. And because I was rejecting myself, of course, you know, you can't really receive from others if you're not able to receive from yourself. And I woke up one day and realized, like, I'm trying to change who I am to make this person happy or to meet this person. And I've grown a lot. And they did too, but he hadn't, you know, he was wanting to kind of stay over here and I was just growing in a different direction. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it was just, we were no longer aligned and we made the very mature, even though it was painful decision to separate because, you know, for me to go backwards and kind of meet him there or for him to stretch and meet me where I was, was changing us at our core and not something that we wanted to do, right? We were just in different directions. And so through the process of healing the divorce, I worked with a therapist, you know, I did a lot of inner child healing work. And I started to realize that the reason why we were so compatible when we first met was because I was not emotionally available because of everything that had happened with my stepfather and, you know, all this trauma. And when we first met, he was living in Macau, I was in Hong Kong. So that's, I mean, it's an hour ferry ride. It's really not that big of a deal in terms of long distance, right? But I clearly remember him asking me once, like, oh, well, why do you like me? And I said, very matter of factly, well, I think it's because I'm emotionally available and you live in Macau. So I get to see you on the weekends and I get to have my alone time. And he oh, just wow. was like, okay, fair enough. You know, so he accepted <laughs> me for where I was at, which was very important at the time. And we were able to meet on a few different levels. And so it worked. But then as I started to heal with my mom, as I started to, you know, I had an eating disorder, as I started to heal that, then all of a sudden this nurturing side of me came back out. This desire to really connect at a deep level was coming back. And I was now wanting it from someone who couldn't provide that, right? And of course, when we first met, it was different circumstances and expectation. And we we were both not very conscious in terms of like, hey, let's have a conversation about what we expect from each other, what we actually want from each other, you know, the five love languages, all this type of thing. And so it became a real friction point. And I was desperately trying to get something. So this whole typical anxious avoidant relationship where, you know, I'd like come after something he'd avoid. And then when he'd come towards me, I'd avoid. And, you know, it just deteriorated from there. So that whole healing made me realize, shit, this is what I've been doing in all my relationships. This is why I would chase kind of the unavailable person 
or even, you know, flirt and then get the attention. And then as soon as I got the attention, I'd be like, don't like you, don't want it. And it was just this really kind of driving force. And so that's really how I figured it out. But it, it took me going through chasing, you know, all the money and accolades and getting that external validation from there. And then, you know, getting married and then realizing I'm not happy. This is not what I want to dig into all of it. So it was kind of this, I had to get really uncomfortable. Life had to become really painful before I was willing to do something about it. And then when it became too painful, then, you know, I decided to take action. That's amazing. I love that about you, that you're, you're so introspective, but you're also not complacent. So it's, you you recognize what you need to work on, you do something about it. And so often than not, you know, we get, it's weird because when like you're sad or you're feeling, whenever we're feeling pain, it's very easy to stay there. Even no matter how uncomfortable it is, it's very easy to stay there. It's like a w- odd comfort in feeling sad. And so it's almost easier to stay there. So to make a move like you do and be so aware of that and make those corrections and also that it takes a shit ton of time, <laughs> you know, it's, it's also that that's also a, even makes it scarier when you hear great stories like you to see where you are today. And, and you do, you know, admit how long it's taken. I feel like that off the cuff, some people are like, Oh damn, it takes that long, but it, it takes time. I mean, I'm still figure like I'm like, it says it's been 20 years since my dad died and yeah. I'm still like figuring things out. I wanted to ask you about your, you said inner child work. Is that what you said? Yeah. Inner child work is essentially we all have the child version of ourselves inside of us, right? And there's a really iconic image from uh, Burning Man one year where they had two adults sitting back to back, facing outwards, you know, by the body posture, you could tell that they were not able to connect. But on the inside of the wire frame were two children touching hands, trying to touch hands. And that's pretty much what happens all the time. We lash out, we self-sabotage, we push people away because we want to protect ourselves, but on the inside, we desperately just want to be connected and seen and heard and, you know, all of these things. So with the inner child work, it's kind of, you go back into what was that moment where you decided that it was not safe to experience this thing or to express this thing. And therefore a behavior, a pattern, a program was put into place to prevent that from happening so that you could be safe. So for example, someone who is a people pleaser, they may have had uh, very often people who grew up in a chaotic environment or with uh, alcoholic or abusive parents, they will be people pleasers because it was a literal safety requirement for them to please the parent. If they didn't bring the drink to the parent, they would get beaten. If they didn't make sure the parent was happy, they would get beaten, right? So this is a, a manifestation of that. So that that five-year-old self created this pattern of, I need to make sure everyone around me is happy so that I'm safe. Now, fast forward, they're 45 years old and they're bending over backwards for everybody. They overgive all the time and they're exhausted and maybe even starting to get resentful, right? Because they're trying to be nice to everybody. They no longer need to do that, but that five-year-old self is running the program because that's what keeps you safe. So with inner child work, it's going back into the root of, okay, where did this behavior stem from? Acknowledging that at that time, with the tools you had and the information and the level of awareness, right, from a five-year-old to a 45-year-old, that that was what you needed and it's okay, but now we can let that go and how do we shift that? So I, I was first exposed to it in hypnotherapy and I did hypnotherapy for uh, an eating disorder. I had bulimia for 17 years. And um, that was all about control, right? And so from about 
14 when we moved uh, and after skating, you know, I lost a big part of my identity. And so that was a way for me to kind of control things. I also had gained some weight because I went from being extremely athletic and active to not because of my injuries. And that was also around the time that my relationship with my stepfather started to deteriorate. So, you know, it was all kind of tied in together. So as I was healing these things with the eating disorder, we would go into uh, these kind of regressive states. So when you're in hypnotherapy, it's not what people think where it's like, oh, you know, you're going to quack like a duck whenever I snap my fingers. <laughs> it's more about going into your subconscious mind. I mean, that'd be cool, but yeah, unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, that's the mentalist stuff, right? <laughs> um, if you yeah. snap your fingers, I might quack, just to let you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's more about watching your subconscious like a movie. So you basically get into the theta state, which is like when you're meditative, where power of suggestion is also very powerful um, in this state. But you you then can start to pull memories, like kind of pulling on the thread and seeing what comes out of it when you're in this state more easily. And so it's very amazing that you can be led on this path and then asked a question. And it's like the first thing that comes to your mind, you say it. And I would be surprised at what was coming out of my mouth. I was like, whoa. I don't consciously ever think about this memory, but very clearly it just came out and that was something that was impacting me. So it allowed me to see different behaviors at different times, all the way from a very young age to, you know, high school, what I had decided in that moment and how that was now impacting my life. Uh, so I did that uh, first round in 2018. So after I'd gotten married, I was like, okay, this, I have to fix this because it got to the point where I wasn't holding any meals down. You know, I was hiding and so good at hiding it, you know, even telling my partner that I struggled with it, he was never able to figure out when I was. Maybe a couple times he suspected, but most of the time I just became very good at hiding, which meant I had all my emotions and there's a lot of shame and guilt around that. And so that inner child work is really what helped me start to piece together the components from, you know, even before my stepfather's passing, but then all the incidents in my life when I had made that decision and then it was unconscious, right? So when it's unconscious, you don't know. And that's why we get frustrated. We go, shit, I, why did I do that? I don't want to yell at my partner anymore. I don't want to do that. But every time something happens, you just go right back into the pattern. So this inner child work allows you to heal it and basically reintegrate that child self with the adult self, take the lesson that you needed from it, make it safe for them so that they know they can let it go. And it's really, really powerful stuff. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much impact it has. And it was the only thing that, after many years of trying different things, helped me to actually remove the impulse to binge and purge with my eating disorder. And to even when I did binge, the thought of purging, like now if I overeat cookies or something, the thought of getting rid of it does not even enter as an option in my mind. And if it does, I'm like, ugh, why would I do that? Whereas before it was a real battle to like, I'd have to talk myself off the ledge, so to speak. Wow. It's just like a switch. Yeah. It's, it's super powerful. And, you know, you have to go a few times and, and really kind of cement it in. Some people need some more sessions than others. But with that, it's also about learning to reframe. So, you know, most people, they think about what they don't want, right? They say, oh, I, I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be stressed. I don't want to be overweight. But when you focus on what you don't want, you often just stay in that cycle or you bring more of it towards you. It's, it's like being target locked, right? When you're driving or when you're riding a bicycle and you want to avoid the tree, what do you look at? You're supposed to look at the road, but most people stare at the tree and then end up going towards the tree. 
a lot of the books I read, I, I always highlight just so I could go back to them and, and rather than read the whole book over it, which I'd like to do sometimes, I just read the highlights. And it was like literally this morning when I went back to this, the book, I'm actually forgetting the name. It was, um, it's a book about the subconscious. And it was kind of, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, it was kind of the battle of willpower and how the willpower can actually make it worse. And it was kind of what you were saying of focusing on the negative and the analogy that it uses in the book is like, is was a, more of a golf analogy. I don't know if you watch or understand, yeah, golf, understand golf, but, uh, when you're shooting for the green, there's the bunker and the sand trap right next to it. And you think, oh, don't hit it in the sand trap. Don't hit it in the sand trap. Instead of thinking, hit it on the green, hit it on the green. Yeah. And those little word plays truly make a difference. And yeah. you're speaking about the subconscious mind. And from my understanding, the subconscious mind can't tell a difference between uh, this or that. It just takes it as a matter of fact, which is why it's so important the words we choose to say. Yes. And, and, and especially with all these habitual reactions that you were saying come from the subconscious mind that is all habitual. And we don't even know where it's coming from because it's so impressed in our subconscious mind that's from who the hell knows, which is why yeah. I was so curious about the the inner child work because I, I also understand from what I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, if like zero to seven, you're of the most, you could be the most um, subconsciously implanted in your head that will potentially dictate the rest of your life. Well, yeah, absolutely. And so it's always curious, it's always interesting to me how someone like you lets it go because I think the first important part is to recognize it and really go back to see where it came from understanding that could be the potential cause of it but then in my head what's it might be even harder and which is why I want to dig into how you did it if you don't mind is the letting go aspect because I'm reading another book right now by Dr. Hawkins called letting go and it's a phenomenal book and I'm like halfway Mm -hmm. through and he's he's talking about a lot of the things that you've already seem seemingly successfully implemented and I think the letting go process on paper seems easy. Actually, I don't even know if it seems easy. Honestly, uh, I think most people say, how the hell do I let this go? Yeah. Um, so the process that you take to let go in the simplest way possible, I'd be interested in hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to touch on what you mentioned. Yeah, the, the zero to seven age is so, we're so impressionable at that age and we're still forming our neural connection. So if we look at it from the like science point of view and neuroscience, you know, we can touch the brain. We can't touch the mind. And so that's why it's really hard for a lot of people to understand these kind of abstract concepts. And that's why I like to go in into the science bit a little bit as well to help them create the pathway for understanding. And we're creating the most connections at that age. That's why, you know, little kids are sponges and, you know, you, you say a swear word once and they all of a sudden are saying it every day in their language, right? But, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're paying attention to everything, right? And so they pick it up and that's why they can be bilingual and it's just natural, right? They can speak both languages, the native tongue, and they don't have to do all the conversions because they can create multiple pathways. As we age, it does become a bit harder, but it's still possible because our brain, brains are plastic. And so when we focus on the negatives, that's what we can often, you know, this, you said willpower, power versus force, right? There's a real power in the willingness to do something. There is power in language. When we speak, there's literal vibration. We are creating sound that is energy, right? We are putting things into the ether, if you will. And so even internally, when you're thinking thoughts that will have an impact on you, whereas when we try to force something, that's that you know, what you mentioned, like when you have really strong willpower, but you're kind of going against yourself because we're, we're going against where the energies needs to flow. And we're trying to force something to happen, like fit into a box. So with, with letting go, yeah, for some people, they might say it sounds easy on paper, like, you know, oh yes, say these mantras or do this thing. And it's hard because we all have a story 
those stories are how we construct our reality and stories, how we connect as human beings. This is why around a campfire, when we share a story, there's real bonding. This is why at a bar, this, there's real bonding because people tell their story and they connect to people. Their guard is down. And so they're, you know, how many bartenders are like therapists, right? They hear a lot of stuff if you're sitting at the bar. And so these stories, these constructs that we have are also how our reality exists. Like the words I'm saying right now, what you're hearing is going through your filter, your filter of your life experiences, the books you've read, the people you've met, the things you've studied, and you're interpreting and understanding it in, in your language, in your words. This is why when we use analogy or metaphor, like you said, with the golf analogy or um, you know anything that we use to create a connection, this is how we can get that powerful understanding from other people. This is why you know uh, vets who've been to war bond and they feel connected. This is why anyone who went to the same school, there's a bonding there, right? Or people who've lost a parent or a spouse really have an understanding and they feel like they're more understood, right? There's often, you know, like I say, for example, I'm not sure I could date someone who has not been divorced because the pain of going through that is something you can't understand just from a a breakup. Like actually going through a marriage and then separating is a very different process energetically and on so many levels. So there's, there's a lot of things that we need to understand there. So letting go is definitely a process. I think that the most basic thing we need to understand is how we're feeling. And most of us don't understand how we're feeling. We know that we don't feel great, but again, we don't have language to articulate, not even to others, but to ourselves what it is that's going on. And so the first step is really building up your awareness on what is going on for you. Where are you today? And so what I do every single day when I open my eyes and then multiple times throughout the day is I check in with myself. Hey, what's your energy level? On a scale of one to 10, one doesn't mean bad, but just one to 10, how energetic am I? Am I really mellow and I'm like a three or am I bouncing off the walls of 10 and I should go for a run or I should get on stage and be super inspiring or something, right? And then from that place, what's one word I can use to describe how I feel? In the beginning, I definitely just used words like, you know, happy or content or calm, but I'm big on wordplay. So I'll go and I'll look on the thesaurus, like what are some other ways to say this? What are some other words that encompass more than just this kind of surface level. And, uh, and in my coaching, I use uh, the emotional literacy wheel. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that. Emotional literacy wheel? Literacy, yeah. So it's um, if you just Google like emotional wheel, you'll basically get it. It's, it's going to have um, on the outer ring, like uh, different colors and segments. And then there's a middle ring in the, in the center. In the center, there's happy, sad, angry. And then the Next layer is underneath anger, what's there? And then the third layer from that, what's underneath each one? So when you look at this, for example, the feeling of being numb, the feeling of being withdrawn or avoidance, a lot of people might put that under sadness, right? You know, being depressed. Being withdrawn um, and numb is actually under anger. Really? And so it's really interesting to start to understand the nuances and the levels of our emotions. So being able to understand for yourself not just saying I'm angry, but I am this. Or if you already have the word that's at the third layer, understanding what kind of bigger arch that fits under will then start to help you understand your inner world better. The more you understand your inner world, the more you can start to navigate it and you can let it go 
because you understand, hey, I can't control all this stuff outside me. You know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I've got a group on Facebook called the Jedi Mindset, you know, yes. strategies for ambitious people. <laughs> uh, and we just have a ton of fun in there. But I say you, know, you master those internal forces inside you, the force, right? So that the, the, the dark forces outside of you can't pull on your attention. And that's when you have these leaders who are, no matter what's going on, they're super calm. They don't have to even raise their voice, but you know when something, like when you're in trouble or when they're not happy, right? But they're not yelling. They just, they have this energy kind of change. And so that's really the first step in being able to let go. Because if you don't know what it is, if you don't even know what you're experiencing, you can't let it go. And then from there, you need to allow yourself to feel it. And that's really scary. I don't know. Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Fuck shit. Fuck. Sorry. There you go. Um, you know, it's fucking scary. <laughs> and um, people who have not ever felt emotion, especially men, right? Men are taught like boys don't cry and this type of thing. I think it, that's changing now, but depending on your culture and your generation, you grew up with a certain set of social rules and constructs. So if, if you're not familiar with feeling like the first time I started to feel again, after 15 years of being shut down, I mean, my God, it was intense. Like it was just, I didn't even know what it was happening or how to explain it. And I'd go through these periods of crying and then these periods of like rage and then these periods of just, you know, not wanting to do anything. Uh, and it was super, super intense because I had years and years of things that had been bottled up. Now I could be maybe, let's say I was journaling the other day and I all of a sudden have this emotional experience and I cried for like three minutes. It passed and then I felt better. Instead of in the past, I would have just shut that down, wouldn't have, you know, can't cry. No, that's that's not good. <laughs> Why would I want to cry then? Who wants to feel that? But if, if you break down the word emotion, I like to break words down, speaking of wordplay, it's energy in motion, emotion. So if you don't allow it to move, you don't allow it to be in motion, it's going to get stuck. You know, look at water. When water's flowing, it's clean. If it's murky in this lake that's stagnant, that's when you get the muck and the flies and the, you know, the gross stuff happening. Same with blood in the body, right? If it's moving, we're healthy. If it starts to pool in one spot, then, you know, you get sepsis, might need to amputate something, you know, it's, it's just how things are. So as we start to realize that, then we can, you know, bit by bit experience a little bit more. And then that's how we can begin this, this healing process. But just being kind towards yourself, understanding this is not a, I'm going to do one session and let everything go. It's there's layers, right? We're as Shrek would say, we're like onions. <laughs> <laughs> we have layers. Yeah. That's terrible, yes. terrible uh, attempt to be Shrek there, but I like that. All right. So, <laughs> so what I got is, which is so in line with this guy that I'm reading, Dr. Hawkins and so many other books. So, so much when you read, when you read this stuff, there are a lot of similarities on what a lot of people are saying and you're articulating it extremely well. So awareness so the, like you're saying the first step is to really gain awareness of how you're feeling and what those, what those feelings are. So check in with yourself. And then from there, you're saying allow yourself to feel those emotions. Just let yourself truly feel it. Don't push it away. And then you made it very clear that it's not a one-step process. And I think you kind of illustrated it when you – to revert back to what you said earlier about, you know, you felt like you had a moment where you grieved and let out the loss of your stepfather, but then things started coming back years later when you thought it was gone. So I think it's part of the process. I'm not saying there has to be that gap, but there, there are onion layers to, okay, releasing it. Then it's like, it's like air out of a balloon. I feel where it's like a yeah. blown up balloon that you let some air out. There might still be some in there and eventually a little more out and then eventually it's deflated and you know, you're kind of released. I feel like whenever I think about letting go, it's okay. I'm feeling this. I'm just going to watch it go, but it, it seems like it's kind of 
like identifying, acknowledging, feeling, and then in that process of deducing the emotions and feeling the emotions, that is the letting go as opposed to really thinking about it literally. Like is that process in itself, once you get to the point of just feeling it consciously, that is the letting go? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely part of it because when we're suppressing that, we're having that like pressure cooker lid on, right? And at some point it's going to, you know, explode off and create this huge mess. So by allowing that pressure to be released over time, you're creating this environment where it is releasing, right? And so it's catharsis. When we cry, that's catharsis. And you know, everything in our world is energy. It's it's physics, right? We'd go back to Albert Einstein and, and quantum physics. Literally everything is made up of matter, right? And matter is atoms. And what are atoms? Protons, neutrons, electrons. We learned this in like fifth grade, but yet we all get weirded out and go, it's woo-woo energy. And it's like, no, literally everything is energy. It's, it's real. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a real fact of life. It's a real thing, um, yeah. <laughs> And so when we break it down to that, I think it makes it a little bit easier for people. But we also now know from science that autoimmune diseases come from stress, pent up stress, like chronic stress, chronic illnesses, right? Tumors, even there's a lot of studies that can correlate. For example, women who don't process grief when they develop breast cancer, it's typically in the left breast. When, um, you know, things like endometriosis and, and fibric cysts for women, that has a name in the industry called the career woman's disease because they are suppressing their emotions and they're being very masculine in their drive and determination, but they're not allowing themselves to feel and they reject the feminine side of themselves. So there's like all these things that our bodies are constantly doing and giving us messages, but we don't listen. I mean, how many times have you been working and you really have to go to the bathroom, but just one more thing, one more email, like I got to get this done. And then you're like about to burst and it's painful. You know, we do that all the time. So the process of actually releasing, whether that's crying, whether that's yawning, whether that's yelling, whether that's having an orgasm, whether that's having, you know, sweating, these are all releases of energy. And this is why uh, people who go through healing experiences, whether that's, you know, like an energy healing session such as Reiki or um, yoga, right? You're in a deep hip posture. All of a sudden people start crying because they're releasing things. That's catharsis. That's releasing the pressure cooker lid. That's actually letting it go physically. And you can facilitate that by moving the body. You know, movement is medicine. You can also facilitate that through, you know, that's a very kinesthetic way. A visual way would be art, you know, just having a blank piece of paper and letting the pen or the paintbrush do whatever it would. It doesn't even matter if it's just a blob, just moving it in a way that you you feel at the time, choosing whatever color comes to you. The kind of auditory way, listening to music, right, being out in nature, connecting with other humans. But one one practice that I like to do, which everybody loves, they think it's really weird when, when I first start to explain it, but they love it. It's known by many different names, but it comes from bears in the wild. So let's say like a polar bear uh, and, and many wild animals, but I'll just use the polar bear. When a polar bear gets into a fight with another bear, they have their fight, right? And there's a winner and there's a loser. The loser, when they're done, will literally like shake everything. And the whole body goes through this process. It's like a dog that shakes the water off when they get out of the water, right? And they do this shaking thing. And it resets their nervous system. And then they walk away, assuming that, you know, it wasn't a fight to the death. And they go and they get their food. They go back to their young or whatever it is. 
And they've done studies, you know, to test the cortisol, the adrenaline, the testosterone in these animals. And it goes right back to baseline. It goes back to normal. They're not stuck in a story of, oh my God, that bear really doesn't like me. Or, oh my God, I might get attacked again, right? They, they've finished the response that was necessary for that experience. They've let it, the energy out and now they move on to the next thing. But what do we do? We just hold on to that energy and then we get stuck in our heads. We intellectualize everything or we internalize and we compartmentalize. And so that energy doesn't get out and we repress the cry, we repress the scream, we repress the whatever it is that needs to happen. So we can simulate that through shaking. And I basically, I'll put on a song, something that's got like a nice beat. I use this one song, it's nine minutes, but everyone, when I ask them at the end, I'm like, how long do you think that was? They're like, mm, two, three minutes. They're blown away when I tell them it's nine. And I guide them through and I, you know, have your feet underneath you, be real stable, uh, start to kind of bounce, feel the beat. Don't hold your shoulders, like let the shoulders come up and down, right? Let the hands just be shaking. And I'll guide them through this process and all of them feel better. Some people have said, oh my God, I feel like I can see brighter colors. Uh, it's a very cathartic release because you're just uh, feeling the solid ground beneath your feet, but you're letting yourself just move. And then that beat facilitates that, the music. And so it's called shamanic shaking. If you're like really into the spiritual woo side of things, it's just a scientific thing that we do as animals. If you're into the science side, this is why people go for runs, right? This is why when they really are stressed, like I just need to go for a run or I need to go boxing, right? It's the same type of principle, but you can literally just put a song on and do it in your living room uh, and, and get some energy out that way. Is that where shake it off? Like shake it off. Is that where that comes from yeah, or what? Shake it off. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And it sounds really funny and it's, you know, silly, but um, yeah, it's badass. I'll send you the song after this, but it's one of my modules and I have an energy mindset and reboot program for people to learn how to reset themselves in three minutes uh, because you can literally do it in three minutes. And so uh, this song's longer than that and you just get more benefit. But whenever I have a long day, I will, I will do that. And every time I just feel like a different person, I feel like I can literally let that stuff go now because I have physically. And whenever we do something physically, it translates internally. This is why when you declutter, you feel so great. You feel like there's all this space and you know you feel calm. They often say the state of your junk kitchen drawer is the state of your mind. We all have one. We all have that drawer where we just throw the odd things in and it's like a bomb went off in there. Um, so, you know, if, if anything from this podcast, the one thing you can do to, after this to help yourself with some healing is to go clean that junk drawer and just organize a little bit and give yourself a bit more organization internally. I was just there before this looking for a pen and the thing was a mess. So I got to go over there. <laughs> um, it's, it, this stuff is so important. I'm, I've, I've been, always been very fascinated in this and very recently in my life, I've definitely taken, I'm trying to be a little more uh, studied on it. But yeah. the, the idea of letting things go, like I said, a lot of people think like the woo-ness of it, but it's so intricate to our life and our health. And I, th I feel like we're at a point of the, a point of time where it's definitely way more acknowledged than it ever was. Like the guy, yeah. um, the biologist, Bruce Lipton, I remember he, he, he's been on this stuff for a while and the, the, how it, how it biologically affects us, the words and the stress. Mm -hmm. And I want, don't quote me on this stat, but he said something along of like 90% of, which is like, it's extraordinarily high number, like 90% of diseases are caused by us. Like they're not, there's like, the, there's that, there's that wiggle room of people that are just born, you know, got this really to get a shit, a, a shit card dealt with them and just born with whatever it may be. But 90, 90% of it is caused either like by a trauma or just by negative thought or perceptions in the world or whatever it comes. But I think trauma is a big one. 
but yes. it's, it's, the point is it's, it truly is way more fixable and preventable than I think people think. And I think people just throw these words out there. Oh, well, my grandpa died from this. So-and-so it's like genetic or whatever the hell the old, everyone used to say, Yeah, but it really is preventable. And like you said, from a uh, woman that don't grieve properly might get breast cancer in their left breast. It's like, okay, what's, isn't that a little, a little quote, isn't that a little questionable? Like what the yeah. what, like that pattern actually shows. And even with the family thing, right? What was the grandparent going through that had that, that created this disease, right? Epigenetics are fascinating. I don't know if you know much about that. Have you read Instagram? Bruce Lipton talks about that all the time. I just bought, I have, I just, I listened to his lecture biology, I believe, but I just got the book delivered to me the other day. He's really, he really talks about epigenetics all the time. When your grandmother was pregnant with your mother at a certain point in time, your mother already had the, all the cells that would eventually become her eggs. And so your grandmother could have gone through a traumatic experience that now impacts you as the third generation and creates a response genetically. And it's been studied with mice where they had the, the, you know, the parent mice created an anxious response and that anxiety was not out of the mice for six generations in a controlled lab environment. So you can imagine what the real world is like, <laughs> there is no control, right? There is no, like, let's not make sure there's no trauma or no incident or anything. So we have layers upon layers upon layers and upon layers of these things. And this is why, you know, there's people who scoff at like all oh, the ancestral thing, but it's like, that literally means our grandparents who were in World War II and exposed to high levels of trauma, we have actual responses genetically and probably patterns from that, you know, because the behavior that they then put on our parents and how they were raised, the stress and chronic things that were going on for your grandmother, which was pregnant with your mother, that then, you know, genetically are encoded that now impact you. So there's a real, real amazing thing there that we can start to understand and we can start to change for, you know, our future generations by changing ourselves. 100%. Yeah, you just, I think one person in the family tree can just sever the generational trauma. And I really think that's, that's at least for their yeah. lineage that's going from them. It's, it's so fascinating and it's so, uh, it's frustrating at the same time that it's not like a, you know, a mainstream narrative or a mainstream educational course that is in schools. <laughs> you know, this, this stuff should I, be, I should, I don't, I don't care about memorizing the presidents. I should be taught about this, but uh, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do have a good book recommendation for people who have gone through trauma. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. It is fantastic. Um, it's basically all this research from this uh, doctor. I don't remember the name off the top of my head of the author. I can see the picture of the book. It's got like a bluish kind of cover with a person on it. And he dealt with PTSD from like Vietnam era vets. And he started, he was a psychiatrist. And he was like, what's going on here? And that's when they really started to uncover what's going on with PTSD. And I just finished it. And I realized for myself how much PTSD I actually also had from the traumas I've been through. And we also have to remember trauma doesn't have to be a major experience like a death or uh, physical abuse, or it can be emotional abuse as well. It can also be that experience that when you were eight years old, your parents were two hours late to pick you up and your eight-year-old self thought you were abandoned and you were going to have to like figure out how to survive. Right. And then that imprinted and you create, you chose at that moment to have a behavior to create safety. So he goes into all of the studies and the history of it and what they've found. And they have found for PTSD, especially that people who go into like arts, like theater, 
are able to heal and transform because they get to change the narrative. They get to be somebody else. And so they transform these stories. They get to express in a safe environment, whereas maybe in the past, it was not safe for them to, to experience these things. So that's a very amazing book, uh, particularly related to PTSD and how we can understand that for ourselves and people around us. Um, the second one is Louise Hayes. She um, talks a lot about the manifestations of disease and what happens in our bodies from a physical point of view based on what the disease is. So like, for example, I had bulimia, right? And when you look up bulimia in her list of things, it's rejection of self. And what did I say earlier? I was rejecting myself, right? I was not good enough for this and I was rejecting pieces of me. So is it just yourself? When you say rejecting yourself, is that just your overall like self-image? And not even just self-image, pieces of yourself, you know, fragments, you know, you fragmented and like, no, I'm this part of me is going to be put on the shelf and, and I'm not going to look at it. There's no one's going to see that side of me, right? And so we're rejecting this part. So it doesn't matter if it's a self-image physically, just a piece of you, right? Whether that's a personality trait or, you know, something about yourself that you're just not accepting. Uh, so it's very interesting to start to go through that for yourself and, you know, you can take it for a grain of salt. You can believe it or not. Obviously, do your own research with everything that you hear in this world um, or come across. But when you start to look at some of the things you might have had, chronic anything, and what it might correlate to, you might become like, oh, whoa. And that just maybe all that does for you is allows you to put the flashlight on what you need to investigate. You know, whether or not you you fully buy into it, it will all of a sudden give you a window of clarity to go, hmm, maybe there is something I can look into with this, right? And the more you do that, the more awareness you have. And then again, that's the pathway to healing. Amen. And I think the uh, the clear first step is always going within. I feel like a lot of times I've been guilty of in the past and I've, I've gotten much better at it. Innately and naturally you react to whatever the external event and you think that as to that is the trigger, which I guess could be a trigger that led you to think a certain thought, but you realize it really all comes within. So I think we really need to start getting a little more internal, paying attention to what is signaling to us and realize you have the opportunity to accept or reject the external signals that are coming your way. But I'm I'm super impressed with everything you just said. And it's so fascinating to me that we're talking right now, because especially the last few weeks, I've been taking some extra steps in my life that are completely aligned with everything you're saying. And I've definitely learned a lot from you and it reinforces a lot of what I'm doing. So I want to thank you for that. If this is just a taste of your program and what you're doing, then uh, your clients and future clients, anyone listening now are going to be in really good hands. But uh, before, I, I know we're kind of getting close to exiting, but I want to ask you, with everything you're doing now, how are you in regards to the trauma that you've gone through and where are you today? And just, uh, are you good? What's up? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be your therapist <laughs> here, but just to cap it off, I'm curious, like after all that you've learned and went through, it'd be, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to hear where you're at right now. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Of course. Um, yeah, I'm in a lot of a better place. You know, I think I'm now more easily able to recognize when things come up, where they stem from, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in the U S because I came to visit my family and it was, you know, the first time I've seen them in two years because of COVID, but also living abroad, I would not, I would come home once per year, but it would be a very kind of quick in and out. And I'd always, you know, like it was an obligation. It was not something I wanted to do. And then I'd go and do something fun and then I'd go back home. And so, you know, right now flights are banned back to Hong Kong. And so it's very interesting how the universe has kind of like put me here and, you know, I can't even go back there. And now I'm looking at relocating just because of a variety of factors, but it's really allowed me to be in this space where I can heal those things with my family, particularly my mom. 
And, you know, I'm very publicly able to say, you know, I wasn't always the best daughter. You know, I would react and be in reaction is repeating action. So you're repeating a pattern that, you know, you're not conscious of. But now that I'm conscious of it, I've been able to take steps to heal it. And so we're repairing our relationship. Actually, today we're going to be spending some time together and that's going to be really nice. You know, but in the past, that would have not been something I would have looked forward to. So it's really nice to be in that state where I've accepted what happened and allowed myself to process and experience and share and be seen and then also understand her process and her story and then see her. Because so often we are trying to connect with other people and we're trying to make them understand us. But at the same time in doing that, we often forget about understanding them. And for a long time, I thought I was really good at that, but I wasn't. Or maybe I was very good at it in like the workplace because I was more detached maybe. And I didn't have these stories that were kind of running the show underneath the surface. Whereas in my personal life, it was like, you know, no, (laughs) very, very different. But I think, you know, regardless of all the things that happened and that I went through, they made me who I am today. And I can recognize that those experiences, as traumatic as they were, I can find the silver lining, the nuggets of gold, of wisdom that allowed me to get through. Like, how did that being shut down and detached serve me? It served me because I was able to be so resilient. I was, I'm very tenacious, so when I go after something, I go after it, you know, big. Um, but I was able to do that and not give up because I had, you know, this ability to just kind of numb things around me and, you know, just go full force. But it didn't serve me in personal relationships because I wasn't able to allow that love to come in or to connect where I needed to. And so there's always a limit and serve. One of my coaches talks about this all the time, how everything in our life will limit you in one way and serve another. And so learning to just recognize that and accept it has been a really big thing for me. And then moving on from there and just realizing that I have the choice. I have the choice to allow this to be something that limits me or something that serves me. And so more often than not, I'm choosing the serving and finding that, you know, and pivoting into a new direction or pivoting my story, if you will, I'm going to use all the puns. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I would say I'm doing very well. You know, the last couple of years with COVID also brought up a lot of stuff as it did for many people kind of like the stick in the mud just kind of got stirred around around. in the lake and all these Mm. things came up. But it's, um, you know, I feel that I'm now recognizing the moments of my day where I feel that fulfillment and that success. And, you know, I've been able to sit there and go, huh, I'm actually living the life that I want to live. Like Mm. I'm having a great time. This is amazing. Whereas before I used to just always be striving, like I need to get over there right? I'm not going fast enough. I need that thing. And then I'll be happy and then I'll be fulfilled and then I'll be successful. So the really, since 2018, 19, this whole journey for me has really been about redefining what success is, what fulfillment looks like, uh, and then finding those moments in each day. So, you know, I still have my moments like last weekend, it was a really hard weekend for me. I was quite emotional, kind of hit me that like, shit, I might not even get back to Hong Kong for like this whole year. And, you know, my partner's putting our stuff in storage and going to come meet me. We're going to do traveling. That's super exciting. But also there's a lot of people that I love there. I've built a life for 10 years. Um, you know, not being able to say goodbye to the home that I've lived in and, and built and, and just, 
you know, my plants, I'm a plant mom. So, you know, <laughs> who's going to take care of my plants? You know, and all of a sudden it just kind of hit me and I allowed myself to feel that grief of, I don't know what's going to happen. And I might have to let all of that go and not see it for a while. And that's, that's okay. But I needed to experience that too. So most people know me as this like very positive, happy, I love change. And like, you know, let's, let's pivot and do all these things. But it's also important to recognize that you're going to have those down moments and that's okay too. You know, that's part of being okay. Yeah. Those down moments, no matter how healed you are, I think are just part of life and you just gotta, I think you just get better and better at handling them and pivoting as you will. Yeah, exactly. I hope, uh, if, if you, I mean, hope you get back to Hong Kong, but if hopefully we get an opportunity to share a cup of coffee or something and Definitely. And, and link up. It would be a pleasure to meet you. But I, I, I do want to thank you for everything you've said. I think you've you've instilled a lot of lessons that can help many people, including myself, in regards to grief, trauma, whatever the hell we're going through. It was a great conversation. So I really want to thank you for your time. I'm going to plug in all your you know your links and whatever you want me to your social. I don't even know if you have social media, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on I'm on Instagram. I'm on um, LinkedIn, Facebook. You know, you can search. Sarah the Pivoter, you'll find me. You can search Sarah Calmetta, you'll find me. And um, I'd be happy to talk to you about my program and how we can help you pivot and become the the person that you want to be. Perfect. I love that. And uh, you're an inspiration. You're brilliant. You have a a great little mind in there that I've blessed. I've got a little taste of. So thank you so much. And uh, we'll definitely stay in touch and um, have a great day. Let's pivot. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) We'll see you soon.